Welcome to the Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights intertwine through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. Welcome back, my friends, to the Shema Podcast. I want to start by sharing something I experienced growing up as a teenager in the 80s. And I'm sure this is something that continues on today, although I'm very unplugged from current pop culture. But when I was growing up in the 80s, there was very famous rock bands. And they would have adoring fans all around the world. And many of those fans reached a new level where they would be groupies. They would follow the band around and they would go to every concert. They would try to get those backstage passes. Now, there was an even higher level of groupie where they would form what is called a cover band. And all they would do is play the music of that band they adored. So why am I telling you this? To set the stage for my disclaimer, which is, I am not a torch rabbi. I am a torch rabbi groupie. And I'm here just seeing their Torah in a cover band. So that is my disclaimer. What I want to talk about today is something that I became privy to like a year ago, a new understanding of Torah that I wanted to share with you, a new totally way of looking at the Torah. First, we have to sort of back up a little bit, and I want to sort of set the stage before I begin with this discourse and God willing convey this idea to you. If you look at the story of creation, we know there was the, the six days God created Adam, and then we had the first Shabbos. But many of you know, who have had an elementary school science education, that the way in which we calculated time could not be possible because we view time by the amount of time it takes for the earth to revolve on its axis. And anyone with a high school science education understands that space-time that Einstein discovered are linked. Now, Rabbi Yokoff Wolby did a great lecture where he broke apart the inner meaning of those verses, the Kabbalistic ideas there, disclosing that those initial days of creation occurred over billions and billions of years. And there's something I've mentioned before, and there's a reason for it as well, is that in the Kabbalistic text, when you learn about man being created, and then it comes up with another verse that God created man again, and blew a soul into his nose, that the Kabbalistic text says that those were two distinct sets of men. The first mankind did not have a neshama. He had a nephish soul, like the animals. He was a higher intellect, but just ran on instincts, just like the animal kingdom. 40,000 years pass, and then God created Adam and blew a neshama into his nose, or more technically, a ruach. And here's why this is all important. Because what God did at that point was he took an ashama, which originates from the throne of glory, meaning that event horizon right beyond where you get away from God's entity, from God's place where nothing else can exist but him. That right outside of that, his throne of glory is where he created our neshama. So they come from the most loftiest place possible. And he brought it down blew a ruach, which is like a soul, like a chain link connecting that neshama from the highest realm possible to this very lowly realm. So the question is twofold. One, 
why is all that text hidden in the written Torah? And two, why do we start counting time only then when Adam received Neshama? And the answer is, is that God is saying that everything that happened prior to then is inconsequential. It doesn't matter, except to give gravity to why he created us and what the purpose of us being here is. And then he gave us the Torah and the, the whole idea being that we would create a kingdom for him in this world. Because what God wants to have another entity that he could have a relationship with. You can only have a relationship with someone that has free will. Angels are like robots. They don't act with free will. The animal kingdom is the same. They all operate off pre-programmed instincts. It was only through the creation of mankind, through giving that mankind free will, mankind could choose to have God enter this world. And so he gave us a tort. He gave us laws to basically mirror how he conducts the heavens so that we could choose to establish those laws, establish a kingdom here for him so we could let him in and be king here. But here's the point I want to convey. We tend to look at the story of creation as something that happened 5,781 years ago. But the fact is, is the story of creation is something that is going on for 6,000 years. So in other words, we are living in the story of creation. We are living in the Torah, which is a very powerful idea and a very powerful truth that is what I want to convey to you. And in the Midrash on where it was the commentators were discussing Ruvain, when Ruvain realized that he was going to be in the Torah, they say that he would have carried Joseph out on his shoulders back to his father, meaning if he had just known that he was going to be in the Torah, his actions would have been a lot different. And that is something we need to take to heart because if we accept and begin to understand that we are living in the Torah, then that defines and shapes how we conduct ourselves and how we want our role to play out in the Torah. And so what I want to discuss today is some, some principles around this, some ideas to help convey this idea, but also use and create a roadmap on how our personal narrative, the narrative of our generation can play out in the Torah. But we first have to understand some very powerful psychology. One is that when something is external to us, we see things so much more clearly. You know, when, when it's internal, we're in the situation, things get very cloudy. So here, here's an analogy to bring some color to that situation. I use this in, when discussing behavioral finance in my professional life. But if any of you were to look at a graph of any market index since inception, let's say the S&P 500 index. And I were to say, show me where you would have wanted to buy more stock. Everybody would point to the bottom of those graphs where it dipped down and say, I'd want to buy stock here and down here and down here. And then I say, okay, now tell me where you would want to have taken profits from stocks. And everyone would circle the top of the graph. This is where I would, would take profits from it. But we know how this actually plays out when people are in the moment. You know, March was a very quick bear market and recovery, but you think back to like 2008, where it was much more drawn out and people were living in that environment of watching their investment account balances drop. When did people sell the most stock? In March of 09, the very bottom of the bear market. So just the opposite played out. And what's happening now? Are people taking profits or are they buying stocks like Tesla? They're trading at 1,300 times earnings. 
I haven't done in-depth calculations on Tesla, but I can say 1,300 times earnings is basically reflecting. And again, I haven't done in-depth analysis on this, but I would suspect that's reflecting every car it's going to sell between now and the resurrection of the dead. So we see the exact opposite playing out. And it's important for us to understand that, that that's how that impacts us. And why is that? Know your enemy. That is the power of the Yetzer Hurrah. Its place, its domain with us exists in the moment. And one of the things that we can do, a tactic, is to fast forward in our life and look back to our old age, our deathbed, and then look back onto our life and now see what is the present as the past. And then we get more clarity on it. That's why the sages tell us if you have two events going on in your community, a wedding and a funeral, which one gets priority? Which one do you choose? And the answer is you always choose the funeral because that gives us the most musar and gives us the greatest ability to really look back at our life in the correct way. But it's beyond just looking back at the past. We also get more clarity when we look at situations outside of us because our yetzer raw does not operate out here, only operates in our mind. So I had an encounter with someone like 15 years ago. I ran to an old high school friend and we started talking we started talking about people from high school that we came to counter with. And she said, yeah, I met so-and-so. I, I had lunch with her, you know, last month. And I said, how is she doing? And she said, oh, she's a total mess. And went on to talk about everything going on with her. And I said, I ran into so-and-so. And she said, how's he doing? I was like, oh, he's great. He's still as funny as ever. And she said, he's always used his humor to mask all his troubles. And it went on and on, one person after another, that she was totally destroying, only seeing the negative qualities in that person, being very critical, nothing, seeing nothing positive about any of those people. So my phone rang and I saw it was someone I didn't know, probably a telemarketer, so I hit decline. And then she asked, who was that? And God forgive me, but I did tell a lie. I just got curious. I said, actually, that's just someone I'm trying to ignore. I've been trying to avoid them for quite some time. And she said, well, why? Why are you trying to avoid them? I said, well, it's just this person whenever I talk to them. All they do is talk about other people. All they do is focus on negative things going on with that person. They don't say anything positive about anyone. I just don't want to talk to that person. And I kid you not, what she said to me was, oh, people like that are the worst. They're so annoying. Now, as I started to learn Torah later in my life and started studying Musar, started learning what the Balm Shev Tov taught that God only brings people into your life to act as a mirror, what that taught me was, is that is, I saw that for a reason. I remembered it for a reason because that's exactly what I must be doing. And again, that is the power of the Yetzer Hurrah. So, so know the enemy. One of the things I'm going to be talking about is that there's this natural, this is cause and effect in creation that's been happening throughout time. And the sages knew this. That's why when you see these events happening in the written Torah, the, the sages also included the prophets in our Tanakh. And every Shabbos, we have a half Torah that's mirrored up against the Parsha, that they're very similar in the messaging. And what they are trying to show is that, yes, you're going to look back in time and say, the Jews did A, B occurred, or the Jews did X and Y occurred, but that doesn't pertain to me now. So they wanted to fast forward a little more in time and say, no, this, these are playing out over and over again. Now, one of the things that we can do to overcome this too is that it's the reason we study Torah. 
Because what Torah is teaching us is that the way to overcome the Yetzirah is to think top down, to, to absorb Torah in our intellect and then use that to guide our emotions. What most people end up doing is allowing the emotions to dictate the intellect. That's why we put tefillin on. As a man, we put it on our head, we put it on our arm, but it's more than that. It's to show us that that intellect needs to go down to our heart and then to our actions. But when the Jews received the Torah at Mount Sinai, they said, we will do and we will hear. Meaning, we may not understand everything in the rationale for why you're telling us to do these things, but we're going to do it and then we'll learn about it. And that is why the man puts on the tefillin on the arm first before putting it on his head to also state the same thing. I am going to do first before I understand it. And there's another thing that impacts us. We have to be aware of, and it's called cognitive dissonance. It's where we have these two opposing views in our mind and we feel stress as a result of it. We want to reconcile those things. And what the Yetzirah wants to do is get us to equalize those through rationalization. And I'll share with you how I have seen this play out on multiple occasions. Back when I went through this period of a six-month transformation from being an atheist to all of a sudden pursuing Torah observant Judaism, I met with someone I hadn't seen in a long time who identified as a Jew. She was Jew, culturally Jewish. And she said, Dan, I'm so happy to hear that you've embraced your Judaism. And she said, so I'm curious to know what caused that to happen. And I naively said, well, I studied all these logical proofs for Torah. I realized that everything in there is factual. And I watched what happened. She literally, her face froze. She stopped talking and she almost became immobilized and just stared at me and became very uncomfortable because I could tell she was extremely uncomfortable and I needed to remedy the situation quickly. So I said, oh, but the, the other reason is, is I met some Orthodox Jews and they were so friendly. And I really like the traditions they held on to, i.e. the man-made traditions. I need to give her the information to reconcile the cognitive dissonance. And I really just enjoyed and embraced the way they experienced those. And then all of a sudden she came back to life. She says, oh yeah, exactly. That's why we have so many Jewish denominations. So we have different ways of plugging in. And I experienced this many, many other ways too, but the other encounters were so much different. I'd be having a conversation with someone. They would ask me the same thing and I would answer the same way. And in those five other encounters, the people got angry with me, like livid. All I did was answer their question. Why do they get angry and say, that's impossible. One person was in a restaurant and he stood up at the table, leaned over the table and yelled at me for stating such a thing. So why is that? I mean, we can see this objectively now. We're outside of it. What would cause someone to get so angry at me just simply answering the question? They could sit there and say one of two things. I don't believe that to be true. Or I'm curious. Share with me. But that's not the case. And I'll give you another story too. I was speaking to someone and he got upset. We were sitting, having a nice conversation. Same thing happened. I said, okay, would you just entertain a video? And there's a video, I said, look, there's a video called A Rational Approach to Divine Origin of Judaism. Just watch it. It's an hour long. It's very entertaining. And he said, fine, fine, I'll I'll check it out. So I went to my YouTube app where I had it saved and I sent it to him. And then three to four months later, we get together. I said, did you watch the video? He's like, no, 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 I I 
forgot. I don't, I don't know what I did with it. Can you send it to me again? It's like, sure. Right there on the spot, I send him the video again. Six months later, we get together. And I said, so did you watch the video? He's like, it's an hour long, Dan. I don't have time to watch an hour long video. Now, I know this person had probably logged in a thousand hours of watching the news, sports, streaming media, being on Facebook. Was this not headline news to at least investigate? So what's, what's happening here? And the fact is, is that a Jew's soul is attached to the tree of souls stemming from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we have very powerful souls, but in order to keep our free will in check, we have to have a much greater Yetzirah to keep us in balance. And the last thing the Yetzirah wants is for a Jew to explore this topic because he knows it's game over. Now, I always think that my Yetzirah was on the golf course where it spent most of its life up to the age of 40 for me. And then he gets a phone call from the heavens saying, hey, are you watching Dan Coleman? It's like, Dan, Dan sins by himself. I don't have to do anything. I'm on the back nine here. having the best game of my life. It's like, no, no, no. He's starting to study the logical proofs for Torah. You need to get to work. So this is what's happening. So what are some tactics we can do on this? And one of them, one of the problems we have is that we have these other isms outside of Judaism, these philosophies, these other ideologies, and we begin to identify with those. You, know, you see people in a political argument where someone has an idea, and if the other person argues against that idea, the person feels personally attacked. Why is that? Because that idea is not independent of them. It's now part of their identity. And that's the problem we get trapped into, is that these other ideas we pick up are like just garments of clothing we have to just shed. So one of the things we can do is not identify with these things. You know, when I came in a Torah study, I identified who is Dan Coleman. I am a libertarian. I'm a capitalist. Now, there may be some truths to those philosophies that intersect in the Venn diagram with Torah, but there's also in any ideology outside of Torah, there's many that don't. And then what do we do to eliminate the cognitive dissonance? What do we choose? That's what we have to ask ourselves. What do we choose when this other ideology, this belief system we have with ourselves contradicts with Torah? And what I've seen happen many a times is someone says, no, 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 no. I know this is okay. This can be permitted, but the Torah says otherwise. So what do they do? They take that square peg, they look at that round hole in Torah, and they start pounding away at it, trying to get it to fit. And that's the problem we get into. We have to shed these other isms if we're going to embrace the right ism, which is Torah Judaism. And I also had someone tell me, it's like, Dan, this whole logical proof thing is nonsense. The only way we could truly know the truth is if we experienced it. We saw it with our own eyes. Now, half the things that these people believe came from the scientific process where, especially when we get to the subatomic world, you can't see things. You can't feel touch, hear. How do we know these things? Through the same logical deductive method that I described that God created throughout the Torah so we would know it to be true. But if they saw a miracle, would that really make a difference? What does the Torah say? If you look at the Parsha talking about the plagues, when you get to the ninth plague of darkness, what happened? 80% of the Jews died. Why? 
The reason is, is because they did not want to go. They had severe cognitive dissonance. We experience this fishbowl syndrome, meaning a fish who grew up in that fishbowl thinks that that's the only way the world is. And we know that's not true from our outside perspective. Fish live in many different types of worlds. They could not let go of that. They had embraced so much Egyptian culture that they couldn't let go of that. They couldn't accept and let go of their other ism of the Egyptian culture to go forward. So since they weren't ready to leave in the ninth plague, the plague of darkness, God took their souls from them so that in order to provide honor to them so that the Egyptians would not see the Jews taking them away and, and burying them. So we see even with these, all these amazing miracles, we still get caught in this and it won't necessarily make a difference. When you, know, when you look at one of the things when you learn about Moses and the level of humility, you know, our sages teach us that to acquire Torah, we really have to first develop humility so that we will be open to truth and not constantly seeking to defend our own opinions. You know, when I was at the Mir Yeshiva about a year and a half ago, I was going on a tour and we started off at the study hall and I was seeing these, these students with their study partners screaming at each other. Their face was red. And I was thinking, you know, if you took those same guys out of the yeshiva scene and put them in some bar at 11 o'clock at night, people would be calling the cops thinking there's a fight about to break out. But then I would go through the tour and I came back and they're no longer arguing with each other friendly because the difference is, is they are pursuing truth. And when the other one helps them identify truth, they love their study partner even more for that. So that is key. And what we do is these ideas that we identify with, we need to shed and let go of because they do keep us from seeing the truth of Torah and allowing us to grow. Torah learning is not meant to be simply an intellectual exercise. You know, it's meant to transform us. It's not about picking up tidbits of information so we can win the prize at Jewish Trivia Night. It's about transforming who we are. And one of the key things that we need to create the story right in our Torah is understanding what Amuna is. Now, Amuna gets translated as the word faith, but we have to understand that we're not defining the word faith like most of the world. When I was 10 or 11 years old, I was going to Sunday school. I would challenge the teachers all the time. Why should I believe in God? And they would say, well, you have to have faith. And they, I would say, what do you mean? It's like, well, you have to believe in it, even if there's no evidence. And I would say, well, why would I do that? And one time a teacher said the same thing. And I said, well, what's the evidence? How do you know? And she said in front of the class, Danny, you just feel it in your heart. So I said, well, what does it feel like? And she said, it feels warm. You have a warm feeling in your heart. And I said, that sounds like heartburn to me. And that could be remedied with a prescription, which all the kids laughed. I got kicked out of the class. I went home, told my dad, I really don't want to go to Sunday school anymore. He said, fine. It's an hour long drive. If I don't have to drive anymore, I won't. He called the school, told them I'm no longer going. And I can assure you that no one there had tears in their eyes to find out that I was no longer participating in the class. And the sad thing is, is when they would teach me about Abraham, what they taught was that Abraham was a super nice guy. And all of a sudden God spoke to him and then God, and then Abraham knew God, which is not what the Torah is saying. 
The Torah is saying that Abraham used logical deduction to discern and understand that there is one God and then spent his entire lifetime perfecting himself, improving that antenna, if you will, to where at a much later age, in an elderly age, then he was able to achieve prophecy. And it's important to understand that when we say amuna, we are not saying have faith that God exists when there's no evidence. That's not what we are saying. Amuna is the understanding that everything that God does to us is for the good. You know, we say the Shema, where we say the Yudke Vavke, which we translate during prayers, Adonai, which means Lord, or we'll say Hashem, which is Hebrew for the name, and Elohim are one. What is the difference between these different attributes of God? The Yudke Vavke is the aspect of God that is governing all our lives and, and brings blessings to us. And that Elohim brings judgment. And we're saying those aspects of God are one because really everything is for the good. We just can't see it necessarily in the moment. And, and that is what Amuna is. And when you further look into the, the narrative past Mount Sinai, we were living in the wilderness. We received manna directly from the heavens. We had the water from Miriam's rock. And then God took us out of that perfect situation. I mean, it was better than that. We had all our needs met. We were sitting studying Torah. It sounds like everything's perfect. Why did he hoist us then into the land of Israel? And the idea here is this. And Rabbi Busco actually brought out this other analogy. When we first meet our spouse, there's so many feelings involved, so much excitement and passion. And then we get married. We have kids. And then those emotions go away. What is God telling us? First, experience what you can have because I am the one creating that experience. Now I'm going to pull it away. Now earn it. Now you know, you've experienced, you know exactly what it can be like. Now I'm going to back away from my divine intervention and say, now go earn it and build that back and make it your own because then it's truly yours. Same thing happens. He puts us in the land of Israel says, now, no more manna. Now, farm for your food. But then he tells us to say in the Shema that I will provide rain for your lands, proper times, early rains and late rains. I will still be providing food to you, but beneath the veneer of nature. And so he tells us to say that to remind ourselves that all our sustenance comes from him. But we need to ask ourselves, like a checklist. I read a great book, couple years ago called the checklist manifesto. I use it in work all the time. These are like checklist. Do we remember that? Do we remember where our livelihood comes from, from all our nourishment? These are things that he's telling us to remember. And when you think about Amuna as well, the story of Joseph really is emblematic of what this means. I mean, here's Joseph. He gets sold into slavery. He becomes, he works in Potiphar's home. He rises up in his home, and then he gets thrown into prison. He's shackled up. He even rises at the, the level in the prison, and then something happens, as you guys know. He tells the baker to remember me. Remember that I interpreted your dreams, and God said, you're not ready yet. You relied on another man. You're not ready yet. So he was in prison for two more years, and then once God saw that he was ready, that he had developed a moon and he was ready, then he quickly pulled him out and then he becomes the viceroy over all of Egypt. And that's what's happening with us. These things that we see that are happening that are not 
what we see going in our favor, it's the same type situation. God's just trying to encourage us and create situations to allow us to reach that level of Muna so then he can bring those blessings our way. So checklist on always remembering that very key principle. Now I'm going to talk about something as far as cause and effect with our world, things that have happened over time. As I mentioned earlier, the laws we are given in the Torah are there to mirror how God orchestrates and conducts the heavenly court system, the heavenly realm. There was brought down in the commentary by Rabbi Hillel on the Zohar. And he, he was talking about when Moses was at the burning bush and God says to him, you need to go redeem the Jewish people. And Moses says, how? There's no way. They have fallen to the 49th level of depravity, to Tuma, with 50 levels. Remember that number. There's 50 levels that would be totally irredeemable. They were at the 49th level. So God tells Moses, put his hand in his coat and pull it out. And he sees Tsaris on his hand. That spiritual affliction that Jews would get when they spoke Lashon Hurrah. And he said, now put it back into your coat and pull it out. And there was no more Tsaris. And what he was telling him is the Jews are not speaking Lashon Hurrah. So you can redeem them. Why? Because he had only one witness in his courts, the Satan. No other Jews were speaking Lashon Hurrah. He had no other testimony. So therefore, he said that I can redeem them because I, I don't have to listen to the court case. Now, if you juxtapose that to the second temple, we know the first temple would cause the Jews to get evicted from the temple, which is the embassy of God's heavenly realm in this realm. And of course, like any embassy in the, in the world, the United States has an embassy in other countries. And when people go into that embassy, they have to follow United States law. And when they have an embassy here, you step into that embassy, that is their soil, their laws prevail in that space. Same with the temple. It's God's, it was his embassy in this realm. And the Jews weren't following the laws. And they were acting very poorly in idolatry and all types of horrible things. But when you get to the second temple, what caused them to get evicted from their temple? They said they were studying Torah now. Seems like everything was going well. But the problem was, it says, is there was hatred from one Jew to another. They were speaking Lashon Harah, meaning they were creating testimony in the heavenly courts. And now the Satan said, ha ha, I have two witnesses. So even at that best behavior, once we speak Lashon Harah, then we create much havoc for us as a Jewish people. So checklist number two, do not speak Lashon Harah because that creates great troubles for us. Now, there, there is an exception to that. If you study the Hofetz Haim on Lashon Harah, there is an exception if there is a Jew trying to bring other Jews away from Torah and God. If they are doing that, you are allowed to warn other Jews about that. I see them on the internet. I will never call them out publicly. It's beyond my pay grade. But I do have people that have come across their videos that I have close relationships with. And I say, stay away. Because what they are teaching is total heresy. And I see something very common with all of them. For one, they're good speakers. Two, they have the most pleasant, down-to-earth, nice personality. But when you listen to the words they are saying, it is in total contradiction 
to Torah. So in those situations, we are allowed to, to because they, what, what happens when they do that is they already have separated themselves from the Jewish people. So to warn other Jews from following in their way is not considered Lashon Hara. All right, so now I'm going to do a little bit of a segue. So I want to build a very important building block to this idea that I want to convey that we are living in the Torah. As we know, the Torah is written extremely encrypted. The Hebrew letters are also numbers. It's written very terse for a very important reason. Rabbi Moshe Kodavera, who wrote the Palm Tree of Devorah, many texts, and a lot in the Kabbalistic area, said that the secrets of the Torah revealed in its letters through many means, including skipping of letters. And what do I mean by this? If Torah is the blueprint of creation, and we are living in Torah, then that means that everything that has taken place in the world, all the notable events, therefore, would be in Torah. And what I'm here to share with you is they are all in Torah. One of the things they discovered is, for instance, Maimonides, a huge, tremendous figure in our history. And what was Maimonides' accomplishment? He took all the Torah and he categorized it in the Mishnah Torah by all the 613 mitzvot. And in a verse where it talks about Moses, which shares the same first name as Maimonides, when Moses was in Egypt, where Maimonides lived, with equal letter skips, you see the name Maimonides. And the number of letter skips have great significance because then you see a lot of space on the page. And then you see with very tight letter skips, Mishnah Torah. What's the significance of those letter skips in between? They equal 613 letters. Every sage, everything that has happened is also embedded and infused throughout the Torah. Now, there was uh, two researchers, Doran Wichtum and Professor Eliyahu Rips. They did an experiment called the Great Rabbi's Experiment, and they demonstrated the statistical significance of these. And they did multitude, thousands of blind studies with other texts in other languages. The statistical testing with these Torah codes within our written Torah surpassed all the requirements for sound statistical significance and did not occur in any other test. Now, again, dear listeners, I know if you're listening to this, that you may be having some serious cognitive dissonance right now, because if you believed that Judaism was simply a culture and Torah was written by man and its parables and its fables, what I'm telling you is probably disconcerting, but you all have free will. What I am encouraging you to do is to research it and not dismiss it. But you will see texts pertaining to everything that has happened up into current times. I'm going to come back to that because that's something that we need to address. Because here's the real thing that I want to get to. When Joseph encountered Pharaoh. Joseph interpreted his dreams and he said, don't give credit to me. He knew better to to only rely on God. He said, it was Elohim that interpreted your dreams, not me. And Pharaoh knew that God. When Moses encountered Pharaoh, he introduced God to him with the Yudke Vavke, Hashem. And it says, Hashem hardened his heart. What Rabbi Hillel in the commentary on the Zohar says, do not interpret that as Hashem took away his free will. That is not what occurred. What occurred was cognitive dissonance. 
What many people thought and what Pharaoh thought was that there was a God. He created the world. Then he left us here to manage things on our own so we can do whatever we want. And this idea, this aspect of Hashem that knows our thoughts, knows our words, knows our actions, is orchestrating everything in our life to give us opportunity to connect with him. That idea hardened his heart. He did not want to accept that. He knew the way he had conducted his life, the way he did to the Jewish people. He did not want to accept it. So the idea itself hardened his heart. This, my friends, is what I see happening with many Jews. The idea of Hashem is hardening their hearts. When the pandemic started, I talked to many Jews who were more secular, and I said, why do you think God orchestrated events to create the pandemic? And the response I got was, I never thought of that. But then it would always conclude with, well, God doesn't control everything happening in nature. I can't, why would God create a pandemic? He wouldn't do that. Basically stating that the Shema, that the God is operating through us behind the nature, that that is not true. They say the Shema, but they were saying something was happening in nature that God didn't have any control over whatsoever. And as I continue to have these conversations over and over again, it all came back to the same thing. The same thing that was causing so many Jews to have the idea of Hashem harden their heart and not being able to really accept the idea of the Shema, that Elohim and Hashem are one. It's like a sore, a wound that we have that's been covered up with a bandage. And what I'm going to do, and forgive me for this, but I am going to peel off the bandage. And it is going to sting at first, but trust me when I say just allow the oxygen of truth and Torah to begin to allow it to heal. Because then you will begin to see things more clearly. Then you will know Hashem and that he is one. So let's go through this experiment again. Let's make ourselves external in world history so we can see things clearly. The Yetzirah won't be involved. If you look at everything that's happened in Jewish history from the first temple, if I talk about the events happened in the first temple, what the, what the Jews were doing, the idolatry, the murder, all types of horrible things, every Jew would say it makes sense. He let the Assyrian Empire in to remove them from the temple. It makes sense. They acted poorly. They distanced themselves from his ways. And there was retribution as a result of that. There was actually something I'll add in that I was studying on Wednesday in my Zohar study with Rabbi Cohen. And what it said was that God's, when he operates with us with hesed, which is on the right side, which is emblematic of our right arm, and then he sometimes operates with this, the side of judgment, which is our, our left side. And the Zohar was saying that when God operates with us with hesed, it's like a father who's walking with his son. And they, and they walk into some evil people that want to do them harm. And when he operates with Hesed, he's putting out his right arm on top of the son's chest and protecting the, the son from evil. However, if the son is acting rebellious, he will use his left arm and push him in the back of his shoulder into the enemy's hands. So you study the first temple. We see that. I think everyone gets that. You go to the second temple. They're studying Torah, but they have hatred towards each other. They're speaking Lashon Haral. Everyone wants external. We, they understand. Yes, we understand why God pushed them out. But as you go through Jewish history and you see the positive things and the negative things and, the, and what crea- is created, 
you can see things clearly until things get a little more closer in time. Let's talk about a positive story of Hanukkah. What happened during the, what we celebrate Hanukkah for? The Jews encounter the Greeks. They don't want to kill them. They just want them to assimilate to be like them. The Greeks live their life all about the physical being. There is no God. It's about satisfying physical pleasures. They worked on developing the human body. They worked out naked, which is so gross sounding. Like I I couldn't imagine being in a gym and seeing some guy naked at the squat rack, but that's what the Greeks did. You know, they, it was all about entertainment. They wanted them just to assimilate. That's all you have to do. Guys, we'll get along. We like each other. Just assimilate. And what the Jews said, they said, absolutely not. And so what did God do? He allowed a little ragtag band of Jews, a little army to defeat the world's most powerful army. So why do we celebrate that holiday every year? Because God is telling us, if you resist assimilation, I have your back. Again, I need the Jewish people. They took the mantle through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through the receiving of the Torah. They took the mantle to create this world. The very reason I created it so I can make a kingdom for myself. They took it. I need you. My relationship with the Jewish people is eternal, but that means my relationship with the Jewish people being Jewish is eternal. So now let's just oppose that to another event in world history. And this, my friends, is where the Band-Aid is going to get ripped because it gets different now. I know it does for me. I know I internalize it differently. No longer am I just objective party reading a story about something that happened in the past. When you get to the late 1800s, what begins to occur? Jews don't resist assimilation. They run after it with open arms. They changed their synagogues to look like churches. They moved Shabbos to a Sunday. In Germany, they changed in the sitters, all the places where it talks about Jerusalem to Berlin. They intermarried. Now, when I start to read about this, now I find myself no longer this casual observer looking at history. Now I see myself in history because I ran after assimilation. I married a non-Jew who thank God is now going through a conversion. But I did these things. I'm no longer independent. I'm in the story. It impacts our psychology so much more differently. And I think everyone listening can agree. But when you look at what then happened, we know what happened. God pushed us with his left arm and the Holocaust happened. Again, the Band-Aid getting ripped hurts. But I will tell you, every time I had a conversation with a Jew about this idea of Hashem governing all our lives, they would not accept it because it always came back to the Holocaust every single time. That is why they could not accept a God that is orchestrating everything. Because why? Because then we have to look and see how is my story playing out in the Torah? And we find many of us were doing the exact same things. But it's too late in history to leave that bandage on. It's time to let it heal and understand the truth. So if this all took place as I said, in the Torah, well, where in the written Torah is this mentioned? Well, in Deuteronomy 31, 16 through 18, it says the following. The Lord said to Moses, you are soon to lie with your fathers. This people would thereupon go astray after the alien gods in their midst in the land that they are about to enter. They will forsake me and break my covenant that I made with them. Then my anger will flare up against them and I will abandon them and hide my countenance from them. 
They shall be ready prey, and many evils and troubles shall befall them. And they shall say on that day, Surely it is because our God is not in our midst that these evils have befallen us. Yet I will keep my countenance hidden on that day because of all the evil they have done in turning to other gods. As I mentioned, there are ongoing events in history through the Torah skips being intertwined throughout the text. In this text, one of the words you will find with 50 letter skips in between the words is the word Holocaust. Again, 50. We had assimilate. And again, here's the bigger story here. Not all Jews did, but we all paid the price. Why? And that's why this is important for everyone listening. Because we are all one entity. Every Jew, part of this network of souls that came from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are like one entity. You know, if someone gets a gun and shoots someone and they get hauled into court, they can't say, uh-uh, it, it was the finger. No, this is what this is the troublemaker right here. This is what pulled the trigger. I had nothing to do with it. It doesn't work that way. We all paid the price. Also, throughout this text are the words Hitler, final solution, and many more. It's absolutely abundantly clear that this is what that this was part of the Torah. This is why I'm bringing this up. It's a hard topic, but it's necessary because the fact is, is we are living in the Torah, which means that the past does not equal the future. It means we can write our own storyline. We can write the storyline for our generation. There was something I read last year. It was in the Zohar. I was reading it on Shabbos and it said, on the Parsha that talking about how 80% of the Jews died in Egypt, there was a prophecy saying that when the times of Mashiach, when God begins to reveal himself, that 80% of the Jews will perish once again because they're going to have that same cognitive dissonance that won't allow them to accept that truth. They're going to be so intertwined with these other ideologies and make it their own identity that they won't just shed those clothing and let them understand the reality. And when I read this, I began to sob and I waited all day long for Shabbos to end, which is horrible. I could not be joyful anymore. I stared at the clock and waited for the time to tick away for Havdalah to come about. And when Havdalah was over, I did what I had been anticipating for hours. I called Rabbi Yokoff Wolby and I said, Rabbi, I'm so glad you answered the phone for one, because if, if I had to wait for this to get this question answered, I would have never been able to sleep. But I told him when I had read the prophecy in the Zohar, and I said, Rabbi, my question is this, does every prophecy have to come true? And he said, the positive prophecy, yes, it will come true. But the negative prophecy, that can act as a warning. And I said, well, that is good news, but we have our work cut out, cut out for us because and, and honestly, at that moment, I realized that outside of dedicating my life to trying my best to be the best husband I can be to my wife and the best father to my daughter, my only other purpose from now to the day I die is to make sure that prophecy does not come true. And there, I know many of you listening have described yourselves as a new term I learned, FFB, from, from birth. And I want to speak to you specifically in the Midrash dealing with the times in the wilderness when Amalek attacked the Jewish people. The Jewish people were in the clouds of glory. They were impervious to any attack. They were inside. They had food, water. They could study Torah. Amalek had no way of penetrating 
the clouds of glory. So why do they leave their fortress to go fight with Amalek, the physical manifestation of atheism? Why? And the reason is, is because there were many Jews that had become impure and they could not enter in th- through the clouds. They were trapped outside. So they left their solitude, their safety, and they risked their lives to help out those Jews that were vulnerable. So I'm asking my fellow Jews, the FFBs, how do you want your narrative to play out in the Torah? Do you want to stay in your roof or do you want to reach outside of it and reach out to those who had no exposure to Torah? Look, it's our choice. We can, we can write this story however we want. But first, we have to understand that we are in the story of creation. And what I would like to propose is that we make the final verse read, and God revealed himself to the world. The Jewish people were in Israel. They had established the temple, Jewish law. They become a light unto the other nations. They become a priest unto the nations to now teach the rest of the world to spread the kingdom throughout the globe. And the Jewish people said to Hashem, we're all accounted for, 100% of us. That's how we can make the Torah end. But it's up to us. As I said, I am not a torch rabbi. Rabbis know how to source everything. But I will challenge you and I will say that if there's anything I said that you want sourced, email me at president at torchweb.org and I will find that source for you because that is a question you should always ask anyone who is saying words of Torah. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.